Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on tech policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I head development at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. And today we're going to talk about China's authoritarian approach to both technology and world affairs. Our guest has a unique perspective here, having served in top levels of government as a leading CEO and now a philanthropist focused on foreign affairs. Our guest is Keith Kroc, a Silicon Valley innovator and former Undersecretary of State. He founded and led several companies, including Ariba and DocuSign. Most recently, for his work securing 5G and his advocacy on behalf of Taiwan, he was nominated for the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. Today, he serves as chairman of the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue, which we will talk about a bit later. Welcome. Well, thanks, Jackie and Rob. I appreciate being on. I would love to start with you telling us a bit about your experience navigating China affairs while you're at the State Department. This was 2019, thereabouts. Sure. It, it all started off when I was running DocuSign, my last trip to China. And I'd been going to China since 1981. I'm a lover of Chinese history, culture, the people, and of course, the food. And that trip was different than all the rest. I could see how China's market competition under General Secretary Xi had amped up in a new form of techno-economic warfare. And, you know, I, 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 was, I went on a two-week listening trip. I saw drone swarm technology. It was the first time I heard about the One Belt, One Road. Uh, it looked like a military supply chain uh, to me. I met five of the top seven Polar Bureau members. And as I was coming back, I go, you know, all I know is the guys with the best technology win the war. And I wonder what the guys in Washington think about this. And I, I'd never been involved in politics or anything like that. I ran all the companies that I built politically neutral. So I went out there a week later. And that's when I was asked the question of, have you ever thought about serving your country? And I said, hey, that's a dream I never knew I had before. They said, uh, you know, can you move? I go, I can move anywhere in the world. And that's when I went to run economic diplomacy at the State Department. And my mission was to develop and operationalize a global economic security strategy that would drive economic growth, maximize national security, and combat China's economic aggression. Now, I, you know, I had grown up in the, in the Midwest. My dad had a five-person machine shop, and I had seen how China's weapons of mass production had gutted you know, the heart of our economic engine, which is small, medium-sized manufacturers. When I was a VP at General Motors, I could see if you build a plant in China, you're not just giving them the blueprints, you're teaching them process engineering, training their people. And, you know, when I was running Ariba, Alibaba stole our intellectual property. So, uh, but I can tell you what I saw at the State Department was beyond my imagination. And I could see what their two objectives was, obviously regime preservation, uh, but also global world domination. And I could see that they were playing a game of four-dimensional military, economic, diplomatic, and cultural chess. And the crossroads for all of that and the main battlefield was really technology. And with little respect for sovereignty of nations, rule of law, respect for property of all kinds, respect for the environment, respect for human rights, respect for the press. And uh, at that particular time, 
you know, one of the urgent missions when I came in was it looked like China's master plan to control 5G was unstoppable. And that was one of our missions. Yeah, you know, Keith, I'm really glad you framed it that way. I love that phrase, guys with the best technology win the war. And I don't think Washington fully understands that yet, or we think we still have the best technology. Uh, We have a report coming out in a couple of weeks. I think it's the first report anybody's done where we've looked at seven key advanced industries like semiconductors, software, electronics. And uh, we looked at global share. And and it looks like China actually outproduces us now when it comes to these, just in terms of volume. And I remember I was in the Obama administration, the White House appointed me to be head of this US-China Innovation Experts Group. So it was actually a great experience. I got to go to China with other experts, uh, six, five other experts. And it was State Department officials who were honchoing the whole thing, who were just great. But we visited Nanjing and uh, we went out to this Ford Motor Company plant and it was an R&D facility. So I said, oh, why is this R&D facility here? Said, well, you look over there, you see the factory? Well, the factory, which is a JV, under the conditions for China to, for Ford to get in that market, they had to open up an R&D lab. So they didn't have a choice. I mean, their choice was either do that or don't be in the China market. So you're right about all the, you know, I look at China as largely predation. Uh, a lot of what they're doing is predatory. And and I have to say, I thought the Trump administration was really the first administration to understand that and take that seriously. And, and I think because of that has changed the way Washington thinks about China. So how did you see that evolving while you were in the, uh, in the administration? Well, I saw it finally drawing the line, you know, It was interesting because my perspective coming in was from a businessman standpoint. So, Rob, if if, if you're a Silicon Valley company and I'm a Chinese company, here's what happens. So if I could steal your intellectual property, if I don't have to be transparent, if I can use slave labor, if I can use really low cost coal-fired power plants, if I don't have to be reciprocal with my market, if I don't have to obey the law or am the law, I'm going to beat you every time. And, you know, these are principles we call the trust principle that protect our freedom and their areas of collaboration. And these are things that we honor in the United States and the free world. But China and authoritarian regimes also like Russia, they don't. They use it against us for their strategic advantage. So one of the things that that we did, and this is how we defeated China's master plan for 5G, is we took those very principles that really add up to trust. And in one jujitsu move, we flipped China on their back. So we actually weaponized the very principles that protect our freedoms. You know, it was interesting when I was in my Senate confirmation hearing, Senator Coons asked me what my China strategy would be. And I said, I would harness U.S.'s three biggest areas of competitive advantage by rallying and unifying our allies and our friends, leveraging the innovation and the resources of the private sector, and amplifying the moral high ground of democratic values. Because if you look at what the Chinese do, we call that the power principle, coercion, co-option, just total disregard for human rights. And so this was really a, a big issue. And I could see before my very eyes you know, at the State Department and in the interagency, how that ship was really turned. And we could also see 
once the pandemic hit, and I was responsible for infectious diseases, and I can tell you all roads lead to Wuhan. The emperor has no clothes on that one. But we could see how they amped up their aggression in all different areas. And I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that their unrestricted warfare is an integrated strategy. And, you know, in a business world, when you're building category kings, those kind of things, an integrated strategy is really key. So being able to take a look at it along all these different dimensions is absolutely critical. And I know you've written a lot of pieces in terms of funding the Chinese and the average American citizen has no idea that that their pension funds and, and all those kind of things. Are, are funded China's military buildup and also their surveillance state, which enables the uh, genocide, for example, that's going on in Xinjiang. Yeah, it's really striking because we found all this evidence. For example, I live in Maryland and the Maryland State Pension Fund invests in Chinese venture capital firms that are building up these technology champions for China. We also found recently that state governments in the U.S. have given over $2 billion in subsidies to Chinese firms. Right. Uh, just ridiculous. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Senator Coons, who's uh, we love Senator Coons. He's our honorary co-chair in the Senate, along with Senator Young, Todd Young from Indiana. So I wanted to ask you, um, you've talked about tech, tech diplomacy. You use that uh, assertively uh, to counter China, particularly in the 5G space. How do you how do you define tech diplomacy? Where, where do you see its future? Because it's frankly a little bit of a new practice. Uh, we haven't done it that much before. Yeah. You know, when I when I came into government uh, and the State, Depor- uh, State Department folks told me this was something unprecedented. I brought in 12 folks from Silicon Valley, technologists, entrepreneurs, results oriented execs. And we combined it, that team with I mean, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with in terms of the career foreign service officers and civil servants. And we created this whole new area called tech statecraft, which is really the integration of high tech strategies, we call them Silicon Valley strategies, the type of economic warfare we practice out here, but we play by the rules because if you don't have your integrity, you don't have anything, with foreign policy tools based upon this trust principle. And our objective when we got the authorities to defeat China's master plan for 5G was to create an enduring model that would be applicable to all areas of techno economic competition. And we built this clean network alliance of democracies that represented 60 countries, two-thirds of the world's global GDP, 200 telcos, and a host of industry-leading companies. And we took the number of uh, worldwide 5G deals they had from 91, probably down to less than a couple dozen. Um, And we also announced things like clean cloud, clean apps, uh, clean carrier, clean cable, which is underwater cable, it's really proved to be really effective. And so at the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy, we're teaching this area of tech statecraft, tech diplomacy to to make sure that technology advances freedom. And it's a, a great bipartisan effort. We have folks like former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, on the board, Stan, Stan McChrystal, my predecessor, Bob Hormatz, Marcia Giovanna, uh, Deputy Secretary General of NATO, just uh, came on board. So this is really important. And, and this is something that we're not just training our government folks on it, but also worldwide. 
uh, as well, and also the private sector, because I think the biggest untapped opportunity in this, you know, all of society issue to protect democracy and freedom around the world is leveraging the innovation resources of the private sector. It's really important that we rally the tech titans. And I know you had Mark Andreessen on one of your recent shows. And I mean, he, he's a great example of a great patriot. And, and that was one of the things that I did back in June 2020. I brought together 36 of the top CEOs in Silicon Valley at my home in San Francisco. So many of them have uh, been there before a safe environment. I kind of kicked it off and said, let's go around a room. Everybody tell your China horror story. I can't really tell you what the contents were of that, but I can tell you this. It was cathartic. It was enlightening and it was frightening all in one. And, you know, at the end of it, I said to the guys, I said, look, you know, out here in Silicon Valley, we say corporate responsibility, social responsibility. It's also national security, too. It's global economic security. And not only is China a real and urgent threat for our democracy, it's a real and urgent threat to your business because they want to just compete. They want to put you out of business. Yeah, you know, you raised a bunch of really good points there. One quick one is I think it's time for ESG to include national security, patriotism. I could not agree with you more. You know, if you look at ESG, there's three I really believe there should be no Chinese companies in any of these ESG funds because, and for three reasons, called ES and G. You know, the environment, these guys are the biggest polluters in the world. They give a lot of lip service. From S is social. That means no human rights abuses. And if you look at, at what they've done in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, they export to all areas around China, slave labor. And then if you look at G, governance, well, that means good governance practices in terms of transparency and accounting standards and being audited. And not one, not one Chinese company can be audited. And, and you know, so they don't apply under ESC. There should be actually none of them. I really feel strong about that. So I'm with yeah, you 100%. I did, it frustrates. I was speaking at a G, ESG conference. They asked me to come up and talk about broadband. And, and the panels after me were all these Wall Street types bragging on, on ESG and then talking about how they were investing in Chinese companies. And I was just like, do you not understand the cognitive dissonance that go going on here? I did want to mention, though, that I think this point, and it ties into your institute, which is, to me, a really critical enterprise you've engaged in. Last fall, uh, in December, a group in, in Korea called the Che Institute, it's uh, uh, President Park, who used to be the Korean ambassador to the U.S., he set up this think tank, and he organizes small sort of 90 people conference out at a nice resort, the Salamander. And it was basically Japanese officials, Korean officials, and USG officials and others like myself. And what I was really struck by was a number of the US government officials who had held very high level diplomatic positions, almost to a person, they said, if I was advising somebody today who's at Georgetown School of Foreign Affairs, Foreign Service or wherever, I would advise them to learn technology. I didn't, is what they said, I didn't learn technology and now I realize I should have. And it sounds to me like that's exactly what you're trying to do there is to fill that gap. By the way, absolutely. And, you know, as I mentioned, this is the battlefront. This is the main battlefield. And this is the intersection in terms of all these different dimensions of China's unrestricted warfare. And, you know, it was interesting for me because when I, you know, in the government, there was, I mean, I think there was one other person that even came close 
uh, to, to, to my level from Silicon Valley. There's not a lot of them. I, I don't know of any of them actually in the Biden administration. No, Mike Brown was going to be headed over there. But and and this whole area of tech statecraft is not taught. I mean, is not taught at the State Department, uh, Commerce Department, DOD, Treasury, Trade. So this area of technology is really key. And that's also why I'm such a big proponent. Uh, forgetting my fellow brethren in the high tech industry to go serve the country and bring back this great nation that's done so much for them because we need that and we need that private uh, sector influence. And I, when I say private sector, I'm not talking about the wealth transfer industries like investment banking or law. I'm talking about value creation industries like manufacturing and like high tech. And it, 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 it's, it's critical that we infuse that DNA in, into our uh, into our federal government. Yeah, it's, it's so sad that Mike Brown, who used to be CEO of Symantec and now is a DIU, uh, I don't know, I haven't gone into the details. I was very disappointed that he didn't get that position in, in DOD. I thought he would have been a fantastic addition, but water under the bridge. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Kroc Institute. How is it different from existing think tanks focused on global security, international relations? Yeah, I think the Institute's probably more of an action tank than anything. <laughs> I love that. We don't like to be considered a think tank. You know, there's a number of things that we'll be announcing uh, pretty shortly. We'll be announcing a global technology security commission that will be that will be comprised of private sector and government leaders from the 15 top technological uh, organizations. We'll also be announcing uh, a joint venture in the area of microfinance to close the digital divide in low income countries and to do that with trusted technology. Um, you know, the other big thing obviously is we're leveraging uh, Purdue's prowess as the largest engineering school in the country, their track record of innovation, uh, their, their global reach. You know, one of the things that uh, just happened at Purdue is that we got a, a $500 million grant from Rolls Royce in terms of research and and development in hypersonics. So um, we're able to, to leverage. We talk about those 17 key security sectors, which, by the way, we'll cover in that technology security strategy, produce a, a leader or one of the leaders in many of those areas. Purdue just announced uh, the first degree in semiconductor engineering, for example, it has super advanced wind tunnels, all you know, clean energy, six G communications, all that kind of stuff. So that's what really makes that's what really makes the Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue really in a league of its own, and it's really fast, quickly becoming, I think, the the global authority in terms of tech statecraft and and building a global trust network around the world. Yeah, that's fantastic. You, you mentioned, Keith, um, also you working with us, some other countries that maybe aren't as sophisticated or large or as developed. You know, I, we, we get delegations all the time from various countries coming in, want to learn about tech policy, talk about tech policy. And I've been struck in the last six months, and I won't say who they are, but a number of smaller countries, they're not super, super poor, but they wouldn't be in the OECD, let's say. And they're they're doing two things that I think are new. One is they're they're doing some really interesting, innovative things around tech in their countries. But secondly, they're being kind of whipsawed because at one level, the U.S. is not 
as far as I can tell, the U.S. isn't sort of helping them and helping to guide them in our direction. And yet there's Chinese money coming in and, oh, if you do this, you know, you buy, you buy the Huawei or ZTE network or go. And I, you know, I know states doing things. You got the digital attaches and, and you, you beefed it up more. But I feel like that's one of the things we should really do. There, there are the, remember in the old days in the Cold War, there are these unaligned states. And I feel that's where we are today, particularly around tech. There are these unaligned countries around tech. And we need to get them into all. Because our model is the right model. It's the best model. And we need to sell that model. I don't know. I'd just be curious your thoughts on that. But Rob, you are so spot on by that. You know, as I was going around building this Clean Network Alliance of Democracy, 60 countries, right? And in so many of these nations, as you as you said, ones that are not in the kind of the top 10, what, what these guys want more than anything else is they want United States private sector investment in their countries. And the kind of investment they want is they want the innovation uh, side. And so this is something that we did a lot at the U.S. State Department, where we teamed up with private sector companies, whether it was a Microsoft or a Google or a Cisco or IBM, and we go in there jointly. That's key. I was also chairman of the Development Finance Corporation, and this was a big focus for ours in terms of where we're going to spend that uh, $60, $60 billion dollars. And it's really the combination of the two. And, you know, if you look at, for example, this whole joint venture that the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy is going to do with Opportunity International, this area of microfinance and trusted technology, it's really is really aimed at that bringing in that 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 trusted tech. So this is this is something when I talk about leveraged innovation and resource the private sector, you just gave a perfect example of that. You know, it's funny. It's a win-win for us and for them. It reminds me, you said you had a bunch of the CEOs in your house. They're talking about China. I won't say who this was. But it was a private meeting, but a fairly senior uh, Silicon Valley company president who had retired. And, and he was talking about his experience in China, and he, which was not a good one. And he said, um, I never heard this before. And it cracked me up. He said, you know, then China, they use the word, we want a win-win situation. And he said, in China, it means that China wins twice. Yeah. You know, just on Monday, I, I was doing a fireside chat with my good friend, John Chambers, who ran Cisco for 25 years. He had experience, he had a lot of experience in that, you know, and he, we all were fooled, right? Because these guys are masters of concealment and deception. They dangle that big market out in front of you. They say they're going to play by the rules, but they don't, we, we didn't find it. We, we did an analysis of the State Department. We didn't find one agreement, not one, that China honored that didn't suit their purposes. They look at they look at an agreement as a one way agreement. You know, we signed it. They signed it. They know we'll honor it. They won't unless, you know, unless it just works to their favor. So now I think and I could also see this as I was traveling around the world, building the alliance of democracies, that the world is woken up to what I call China's three C's. The third three C's doctrine of concealment, co-option, and coercion. And I think citizens understand now the pandemic is a result of the concealment of the virus, regardless of where you think it came from. And, and people saw the co-option of Hong Kong and how it eviscerated citizens' freedoms. And people are realizing now that that coercion in Xinjiang has resulted in a punishable genocide. And citizens don't like it. And so now it's beginning to give the political will to government leaders and CEOs around the world to stand up to that 
uh, China bully. And, you know, it's probably the most unifying bipartisan issue on Capitol Hill. And, and you know, we've all probably had experiences with bullies at you know, one point in our life. And all I know is when you confront a bully, they back down and they really back down if you have your friends by your side. So that was the beauty of this approach in terms of, of building alliances is that there's strength in numbers and there's power and unity and solidarity because what China's strategy is all about is divide and conquer and pick off the weak gazelle from the herd. And this is the only way that we're going to be able to protect our democracy. And now when you see what's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that's heightened everything. And, you know, I, I just I just wrote an article in Fortune magazine about what I'm seeing. Some of the most prominent and most well-respected board members are asking their CEOs for their China contingency plan at the next board meeting because the heightened risk of a China-Taiwan conflict. And they saw how off guard they were caught with what happened in Russia and pulling companies out of Russia and how much that caused. There were no plans sitting on these shelves for anything like that. And so um, we're seeing that now because board members, fiduciary responsibility to shareholders is to mitigate a dramatic risk like that. And that is a real probability. Man, we could do this for a long time. Uh, this is fascinating, but we need to unfortunately stop. I just mentioned one quick thing to reinforce your point. When I was on this uh, U.S.-China Innovation Experts Group, we were over there ahead of the, or partly through the, uh, the strategic and economic dialogue meetings. And so we had an innovation dialogue. We had lunch with uh, senior Chinese officials. I think this official was from NDRC, and I was chatting with them, and I said, uh, Aren't you worried about the U.S.? He goes, no, we, we think we can go toe-to-toe with you. Uh, what we're really worried about is is the G2. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, what we're really worried about is the U.S. and Europe or U.S. and Japan ganging up on us. We can handle one country at a time, but we can't, essentially, we can't handle countries combining. And it's to your point, a bully picks off one, yeah. one weak person at a time. But if you stand together against the bully, they back down. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that is really the big point. And that is the direction that we need to take it. And that's, and by the way, that's a key, you know, that's obviously a key part of the art of tech diplomacy. And that is rallying those uh, allies and our friends. You know, what was interesting, the, re- the reason why all previous U.S. efforts uh, were failing in this 5G thing, I mean, before I came in, government officials going around the table, bang, going around the world, banging on the table saying, don't buy Huawei. And, and I'm like, no country or telco CEO likes to be told what to do. So we came in, we just said something. This is another one where guys at the State Department said, wow, we never thought. And we just said, well, why don't we treat these countries and these companies like customers? Nobody likes to be told what to do. The customer's always right. So we need a value proposition. And so that's, I think, you know, what it's really all about. It's a different mindset. And uh, and we can do this, but we need our allies and our friends. Yeah. yeah, that goes back exactly to tech diplomacy. Keith, this was really fantastic. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being with us. Well, thank you so much. I wish you guys all the best. And thank you for your service and what your foundation and, and your innovation group is doing because it's just absolutely great work. Thanks, Keith. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. 
and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And we have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in. 